Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast today. Dr. Mike Curlew and I recorded an epic and awesome podcast on depression a few days ago, and lo and behold, my computer decided not to record it. And I tried my best to salvage it, but you know what? Mike had some really good points in there. I'm going to try my best to recreate it for you guys here, and I'll have a fairly quick summary of depression right up next. So depression for the CCFP exam is huge. It's huge in practice. It's a significant proportion of the patients that we see either present with depression, have comorbid depression, or are there for a masquerading diagnosis. So they come in, they're worried about their sleep. Really, it's their depression. It's their mood. It's something going on with their mental health that you need to try and fish out. This is a really common scenario on the SUS. It's really common to have depression as the second diagnosis with something completely unrelated, and it's up to you to search for it, to have a low index of suspicion to ask for it, and to make the diagnosis and then figure out appropriate management for it. So to start off with, uh, what is depression? I think, uh, and Mike and I were discussing this, one of the biggest things to remember about depression and about most mental illness in general is that really we're just picking a pattern of symptoms, so designating a syndrome, and we have effective treatments for it, but we don't really know what the disease actually is. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know how it functions in the brain. And the medications that we use, like the SSRIs and the SNRIs, um, are a fairly blunt instrument. And so, you know, as research progresses, we'll get to more finely tuned approaches to uh, diagnosing and treating depression. So the diagnosis of depression in the DSM-4 uh, you got to know this for the exam, have it memorized. It's five of the following nine symptoms present almost every day, and they must have at least one of the first two symptoms. So symptoms in order are the two major symptoms, uh, which they have to have at least one of, are depressed mood for most of the day, nearly every day, and decreased interest or pleasure in most activities, otherwise known as anhedonia. And then the other symptoms, so significant weight change, either up or down by 5%, or a significant change in appetite, as reported by the patient, a change in their sleep patterns, so either sleeping way more or way less, psychomotor agitation or depression, so agitation can be anxiety, but really in kids especially, it can be more irritability. Next symptom, feelings of guilt or worthlessness, so we'll talk about guilt in a second as well. Uh, decreased concentration, and suicidality, so thoughts or plans of suicide. So those are the nine symptoms. They must have five of them, including one of the first two, to make the diagnosis of major depression. They must have these symptoms almost every day for at least two weeks before you make the diagnosis. And in the dsm 4 there's an exemption for grief. So if they've had a triggering event in their life where grief, a grief reaction would be appropriate, at least according to the DSM-4, you're not making that diagnosis. Now in the DSM-5, they've removed that distinction, and at least personally, I'm of two minds on it. I think it's good that we remove the distinction because it prevents making the diagnosis of depression 
in patients who may very well be having a grief reaction, but may have had underlying depression before that, and it's unmasked now. Um, and it also allows us to shut off our brains and just be like, oh no, you're just grieving. Don't worry about it. It'll get better. Where really we should really look at the impact on their life. With any of these mental health disorders, the disorder part of it means that we're talking about something that's had a significant impact on them. So either socially, occupationally, uh, with education, with work, uh, friends, family, anything like that. And if it's a disorder or if it's disordering their life, then you need to be open to making a diagnosis and treating rather than just chalking it up to, to a grief reaction. So there's subtypes of depression, uh, melancholic depression, atypical depression, catatonic depression, postpartum depression. That's a really big one. Um, and certainly in family practice that you'll see more often than not, up to 10 to 15% of uh, new mothers will present with uh, depression shortly after giving birth. And that may be treated differently. And then seasonal affective disorder is a subtype as well. And especially in our northern climates up here, uh, this is a subtype that's definitely worth trying to make the diagnosis because you can treat it effectively with light therapy where um, that's not uh, part of the treatment regime for other types of depression. And it may save them going on a medication. So uh, after we go through all those symptoms of depression and the subtypes of depression, how are you going to remember this for the exam? I'm the king of mnemonics. It's the only way I remember anything. So the de major depression disorder mnemonic is SIGGYCAPS, S-I-G-E. C-A-P-S. So first one, sleep changes, uh, interest, aka loss of interest. Uh, G is guilt or feelings of worthlessness. E is energy, energy being down or fatigue. Um, C is concentration, down. Uh, A is appetite, so either reduced appetite or weight loss. Uh, P is psychomotor agitation, so either agitation or re retardation. And finally, S is suicidality, so thoughts or plans. And so Mike and I chatted at length about making the diagnosis of depression. And I think, especially for your exam, it's good to have it firmly in your head what the psychiatrists feel as delineated in the DSM is the diagnosis of depression and what we should be treating and when we should be treating it. But remember that once you get out into clinical practice, and even as a resident, a lot of this is your clinical gestalt. It's what you feel after taking the time to talk to the patient in the context that they're in. There will be patients who appear significantly depressed who have just had something horrible happen in their personal life um, where their current mental state may be normal for them and starting treatment or implying that they have a disorder may make things worse or at the very least won't help. Whereas on the flip side, there's people who may be able to mask their depression, especially when they're out in public, um, to the point where they appear happy and cheerful, but are actually quite depressed. And you need to really dig for that information um, when they come in, perhaps with an unrelated complaint. Once you've made the diagnosis of depression, I think it's really important at this stage to do a functional assessment right off the bat. The functional assessment tool that I really like using is the PHQ-9. I find the PHQ-9 to be really great because it's nine for the nine symptoms of depression. Um, it asks it in a plain language way that patients are able to rate on a numerical scale. And the reason why it's I find it's nice to have this up front when you're making the diagnosis of depression is, A, it helps you make the diagnosis, but also once you start treatment, whatever that treatment is going to be, some patients will feel like whatever treatment they're undergoing is not helping, that they're not getting there. 
And that can be either because that's actually happening or it can be part of their depression where they're just not able to see the positive sides or the positive changes in themselves. And so especially in that acute period where you started treatment um, and you're following them up fairly closely, if you do uh, sequential PHQ-9s or another functional assessment tool, you can show them with a objective number that, hey, look, you know, you may not feel that much better, but look, you've improved two points, three points. Let's stay the course for now, see how you do. Um, and conversely, if you're not getting better with that somewhat objective measure, okay, how can we modify our treatment regimen or what isn't working for you? What can we do differently? And then management of depression or treatment of depression. Um, again, you need to know this for the exam. You don't need to know this in depth per se, but you should know a few medications. You should know the types of therapy and you should know when to use each of them. So first up for most patients, non-pharmacological therapies. So if they're open to interpersonal therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, that's great. Um, Mike had a really good point that uh, this mini CBT or brief CBT, um, when you're doing this close follow-up of patients, is a really good tool to have in your armamentarium for uh, primary care medicine. So there's courses offered, I'll put a couple in the show notes, that can help train you in doing these kind of brief CBT interventions with each visit, but you are also more than welcome to refer to uh, psychiatric or psychological professionals well for that therapy. Um, if patients are open to that, there's good evidence for CBT and IP therapy in depression, um, especially in moderate and severe depression. The other thing to mention in non-pharmacological uh, therapy for depression is specifically for uh, seasonal depression disorder or SAD, seasonal affective disorder. Um, there's excellent evidence, there's level one evidence to support light therapy as a first-line treatment for depression with seasonal symptoms. There's also some evidence, although not great, for the use of exercise, yoga, um, sleep deprivation, which was new to me. Um, there's a reference in the study notes for that referencing a 2009 paper from CANMAT. CANMAT in general is a good reference if you want to review your mental health disorders for the exam and for practice. That's CANMAT is the Canadian Network for Mood and Anxiety Treatment, and they have some good reference material and guidelines for healthcare professionals, some of which I've used in this podcast in, in the study notes. And then your pharmacological therapy for depression. This can be first line or it can be um, second line. It can be done in conjunction with interpersonal therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy as well. Um, pharmacological options, there's tons of them. The RX files, which I'll put a link to in the show notes if you have access to that, um, has a very comprehensive summary of all the medications, their side effects. I find in my practice, there's not a whole lot of difference between medications within each class, although patients definitely respond differently to each one. So sometimes it's a bit of, you know, just choosing one and seeing how it goes. But there are some differences with some of the medications and reasons to try one over the other. First line medications for depression would be the SSRIs or the SNRIs. If you've tried one and haven't noticed a good response in patients, definitely try another one from the same class before you go on to, to a third, fourth line agent. There's also the TCAs, the tricyclic antidepressants. Of the tricyclic antidepressants, one to keep in mind is for patients who suffer from migraines and need prophylactic therapy for that and also have a new diagnosis of depression, amitriptyline or nortriptyline are good agents to start with because you can treat 
two diseases with uh, one medication. With any of the SSRIs, uh, be mindful that probably one of the biggest side effects that people suffer from and that we don't always uh, find out on follow-up is the sexual dysfunction. You really need to ask about that after you've initiated an SSRI because that may be a reason for non-compliance or worse, non-compliance without them informing you that they're non-compliant because they're embarrassed to tell you or they feel that, you know, it's worth uh, treating their depression and not having much of a sex life. But different agents within that class act differently for every patient and that could be an opportunity to try a different agent and maybe get the benefits of uh, antidepressant uh, therapy and fewer of the side effects for them. And then perhaps the most important thing with any mental health presentation is suicidality and suicidal inquiry with the patients. So any mental health presentation, be it depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, you need to ask about suicide. Patients are not embarrassed by this. We seem to be embarrassed by it sometimes. If you're upfront and ask it in a non-judgmental way, patients will usually be upfront with you and they'll tell you, no, I've never had these thoughts or yeah, I have these thoughts often or you know what, I've actually attempted before and had a serious attempt. So when assessing for suicide, everybody knows the sad person's demonic. Um, I'm not going to go over it here. You can find it anywhere as online. The difficulty with using a mnemonic in suicide though is that these patients are not homogenous. They don't present with suicidality in the same way. Um, and even if you look at the mnemonic, some of the things in there are not black and white and they can't be checkmark answers like P for previous attempts. Well, there's a huge difference between taking slightly too many Tylenol and being found hanging in the closet and you would have been dead or somebody didn't discover you. That's obviously a much more serious attempt and you need to take it much more seriously when assessing for patients. So there's this paper by Birnbaumer in 2013 that I'll put in the show notes. I'll also include a quote from it in the study notes for the topic of suicide. But this quote really sums up for me what we need to be doing and what our uh, duty of care is uh, when we have patients who we suspect may be suicidal. And the quote is, at this point, the best way to assess suicide risk is by listening to patients and their loved ones, seeking corroborative information, and then using your judgment. So I think that really summarizes for me anyways, that you need to take time. Assessing for suicide takes time. You need to understand the patient's context, where they're coming from, why they've presented to you either in clinic and emergency, understanding what their current supports are, what their current stressors are, um, what's going to happen to them when they go home, if they go home today. And then you need to make a decision. And it's a really difficult to decision to make sometimes. If you're in a tertiary center, um, not to knock our colleagues there at all, but um, it's definitely much nicer to be able to have professional psychiatric um, referral services available um, and handy so that um, you don't need to make the, those difficult assessments for those patients that are on the line and you're a little bit worried about and let somebody who does this for a living have a look at them. In the rural settings, this is a decision that you need to make, uh, hopefully in consultation with your specialist colleagues over the phone at least, but again, it, it comes down to you making the decision because they're not there. They're not seeing the patient. They don't understand the context. Um, and at least in my practice, I find this to be one of the more difficult decisions I make and the ones I lose sleep over because you certainly don't want to, uh, to mess this up for a patient. And so to sum up today, major depressive disorder and depression in general is a huge topic for the exam. It's a large part of your practice once you get out into family medicine. 
It's important to know how to make the diagnosis, have a low suspicion for looking for the diagnosis when patients present with other presenting complaints. It's important to know how to do a functional assessment and to follow these patients. And it's important to know how to manage these patients. So whether you choose non-pharmacological therapies, interpersonal therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, or if you choose to go straight to the drugs, um, you need to know how to use them. For the exam, you need to have an example of at least two SSRIs, I would say, SNRI, a TCA, have a starting dose in mind for them as well. Know maybe when one is better for either sexual side effects or weight gain or insomnia or any of the other common complaints that come up with depression as well. Probably the best reference for antidepressant drugs would be the RX files, which I put a link to in the show notes. And most Saskatchewan residents, at least, would have a good idea of what this is. It's very comprehensive, covers every drug and indications, side effects, and differences between each of the medications as well. And that's depression today. Uh, hopefully next week, uh, Mike will join me again and we'll talk about diabetes. And this time, I may actually record it. Have a great day, everybody.